Hi, everybody, and welcome to the NDSC podcast, a place where management faculty and PhD students share about their journeys and stories in academia. My next guest is Professor Pierre Fies, the Jill and Frankfurt Tita Chair in Business Administration, Professor of Management and Organizations, and Associate Vice Dean of for Research at USC Marshall School of Business. This was a great episode, and I hope you enjoy our conversation and interview with Pierre. Okay, welcome everybody. Uh, I'm here with uh, my colleague Beatriza from the NDSE and our guest, uh, Pierre Fis. Pierre, thank you very much for being here with us. We appreciate your time. Well, Beatriz and Jose, it's my pleasure. Uh, thanks for uh, the, the opportunity to, to speak with you and uh, hello to everyone who's uh, joining or who's uh, uh, watching this, I guess. So we're recording this, so <laughs> this will be for later, a point in time. So yes, yeah, my pleasure. So, Pierre, this is, uh, and I, I mentioned maybe a little bit of this, but this is a, a podcast we we have and we launched last year, and the the audience is mainly early stage PhD students or uh, folks that are considering uh, getting a, a PhD in management mainly, right? So, before I start with the kind of like formal interview, I always kind of like have as an icebreaker ask uh, anybody that I'm interviewing. Who are you kind of like outside of academia, right? So let's let's put the books, the journals, the articles outside and the classroom and outside of the university, what is something that you're really passionate about, maybe a hobby, something that you do and uh, that has to do with, with peer uh, outside of, of the school, right? Um, well, there's, there's uh, so I'm, I'm of course, you know, sort of husband, father, friend, all that kind of stuff um, and uh, colleague, but uh, outside of work, um, well, one thing for which I try to make time every day is cooking. Um, and I found that, uh, uh, you know, I, I fancy myself a, a, a quite quite a decent cook by now. I've sort of spent a lot of time on it. Um, I'm sort of a specialist in all styles, uh, whatever it is. Um, but uh, my children challenge me, actually. So they, they, uh, they enjoy that, too. But I found that cooking is good for my mental balance. It's sort of it's everything that my day job is not. <laughs> meaning it's uh it's a quick uh turnaround you don't spend years until that paper is accepted but uh, whatever you start that evening you're going to finish that evening um it's working with your hands it is uh working with uh texture smell uh taste right you know sort of all the kind of things and but in in and there's an interesting parallel sort of there was a one of my colleagues that was talking with uh my colleague Benoit Rioux, uh, he's uh, in, in, in Belgium. And we're both, uh, we share that uh, passion for cooking. And we kind of said, look, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of parallel between doing research and cooking, if you think about it, right? You know, so both are, there's recipes that, that work. There's, you know, so the experience makes you better. You can, you know, there's, there's never a limit. You can always do better if you wanted to, right? You know, sort of, it never stops as a process unless you decide it stops. Um, but, uh, and there's probably a lot more, you know, so that we could explore, but, uh, yeah, so that's, that's one of the things that, uh, I love to do apart from that, uh, you know, sort of this may be a little bit of a cliche, but, um, I spent, uh, every summer, so my wife and I try to spend time traveling with our kids and, uh, because my wife and I are both originally from Europe, I grew up in Germany, she grew up in, in first in, in Austria and then in, in, uh, uh, Thailand and Singapore. 
but we uh, we travel with our kids and and uh, try to sort of you know visit at least one one different country every year so they see something new so that's nice so i want to do two quick follow up questions from that one is is there a, a particular dish you would say you're locally famous maybe in your family or within your <laughs> friends like oh that when 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 peer prepares this dish like that's uh, your signature dish or maybe if not some a, a dish that you really like uh, cooking maybe you know it's been There, there, there's, 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 you know, here's, here's how we think about it. You know, I was just um, at, uh, at, I try to get inspired by, by, you know, by, by memories or by trips. So, so yesterday I, uh, um, so made, made a Vietnamese catfish uh, in a clay pot recipe that, um, and that one was sort of my wife and I discovered when we were living in Chicago and little Vietnam had amazing sort of versions of that. And, And I remember going down to to that uh, area and buying the clay pots there. They're look, they're cheap clay pots, but they're they're specifically for that dish, and they're kind of fun to have around. Or so I did a um, um, uh, a workshop, uh, a joint uh, um, IAE uh, OMT workshop um, in uh, uh, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, which was uh, absolutely terrific experience meeting the the scholars down there and. Uh, uh, Thomas Fauci was among them, and and sort of you know sort of, uh, and, and he invited actually all all of us afterwards to a to a dinner at at his place with an Argentinian uh, a barbecue, including um, you know sort of all what you would expect uh, uh, empanadas uh, to start out, and then you know wonderful dish and sweetbread and so forth. So I'm trying to get inspired by that and recreate those, uh, but uh, there's a couple of go tos you know sort of that I nice. that I love to cook as well. But that's probably enough for now. So. <laughs> I love it. Thanks, Steve. Uh, okay, so now we're gonna go kind of like into the the more, let's say, formal interview. Although it's sure. pretty pretty informal, I guess, right? But the first question that we got for you is maybe tell us a little bit of what brought you to this career and how was kind of like that decision of I'm actually gonna pursue a PhD. I want to become a professor. Um, frankly, this was not like like for many, this wasn't necessarily planned. Um, it's sort of a combination of, I do very much believe sort of in the idea of Seneca the Younger of sort of where luck is when opportunity meets preparation. So luck is not sort of uh, uh, randomly distributed. But um, at the same time, for me, it was um, it was sort of, a, I, I didn't know what what I wanted to do with my life until fairly late. I was uh, in my, my, my late uh, uh, 20s. And uh, after having worked here and there and I'd done my compulsory service, Germany still had compulsory service. And And um, I was uh, studying sociology at the University of Hamburg. And, um, and I, I, I spent a year in a direct exchange program at uh, Smith College in uh, uh, Western Massachusetts. And, uh, and you might, uh, if you know Smith College, you might know that's a women's college. So you might say, what about what I do in there? Well, it turns out the, the graduate program is co-ed. So okay. it was a, a tiny program. There was only you know, very few of us there. But uh, while I was at Smith, I realized that uh, Academia could be very different than at a large public university in like Hamburg in Germany at the time, which was very impersonal, very resource poor, um, hard, you know, sort of 200 people to a lecture, that kind of thing. And sort of, and I realized what what it could be like to be a both an, an, an a scholar and an educator in in that kind of a place. And literally, sort of that was so it was a little luck 
Um, but then seeing that, and, and after that, I was literally on a mission. So, you know, I'm, <laughs> that, that I definitely wanted to get my PhD in the United States. And, and I was lucky enough to, to, you know, get accepted at the places I applied to, including Northwestern, uh, which is uh, where I got my PhD um, in uh, jointly in sociology and management and organizations. So, um, so to, to, to a large degree, this was not something that was, was planned. It was sort of, uh, I, I, I probably knew that I wasn't a bad presenter. So, so it was something of an educator there already, but, um, uh, yeah, it was, uh, like, like, I, like I said, as I expect for many to be sort of somewhat serendipity and a little bit, uh, of, um, of, uh, uh, talent and match. And, and of course, you know, so once you get into that, you realize that at least right now, it's still one of the very best jobs you could ever have, you know, sort of when you're, when you're, you get to work with uh, students, they're eternally young, right? You know, so I get older, but they're eternally young. And, um, and it's, uh, you know, in the end, there's nothing like when you, when you, when you can work with somebody and they sort of, you know, see something or, or sort of a light bulb goes on and kind of, or you jointly with a doctor student work on something. Um, those are just things that I think make our, our profession very special. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So, exactly. Uh, along this line, exactly, you were mentioning that you like uh, working with doctoral students. And uh, uh, what's your other favorite parts of the job? What, what is the most fulfilling part of this career that uh, you chose to pursue? Um, you know, sort of, I think that that probably changes um, as you sort of uh, move along your career and, and priorities change. Um you know, look, you know, sort of when I was a doctoral student and I got my first uh, top journal article accepted, yeah, I was ecstatic, right? You know, that was a, um, and look, you know, when you, when you, especially when you're in a career, you get an r and I strongly believe sort of that you take yourself out to dinner and you celebrate that because, um, you know, sort of those things only come along ever so often and you have to sort of celebrate those things. Otherwise, the, they go by way too quickly. Um, so, so that was sort of early on important. Um, when I started, I wasn't a very good educator. I know sort of when I started at Queenstown University, uh, the first year I taught, I had no idea what I was doing and I was not good at it. And the students let me know. So I plunked down and a lot of time and, and really invested in my, in building up my teaching until eventually. So, you know, at, at USC, I've been, been, you know, sort of, I've, I've won a number of teaching awards finally, but it, it didn't come necessarily naturally to me until I figured out that what I really need to do is, you know, so it's, it may be cliche, but if you're authentic, um, students can tell. And if you're not authentic, students can also tell. Um, and, and, and I know I learned from a lot of colleagues here, especially here at USC, that, um, look, if you're, if you, if you care about the students, if you know what you're talking about, um, and if you are passionate for what you're teaching, you will always do well. Those three things have to be there. And if those if one of them is missing, um, then things uh, don't work out. It's like the, the Anna Karenina principle, right? All of these have to be present for this to work out, right? You know, so yeah. there's homogeneity in success, and there's a lot of diversity in failure. But um, uh, those things, right, you know, so then when you're teaching and, uh, and students are, so when you get that moment, sort of the light bulb goes on, that's, that's exciting, that's wonderful. When students reach out to you after, afterwards, like years later and kind of, you know, share something or, you know, during a graduation event, kind of come up and say, look, you know, sort of this was just really, really made a difference for me. That's great. Um, I used to get that a fair bit with the undergrads, but I haven't taught undergrads in about 
at least a decade by now. So I've, I'm teaching the the MBAs and and well, no, mostly the MBAs and some executives. But uh, I used to teach doctor students as well, but not right now. Those things are great, and and of course, let's not forget. You know, there's always you know one thing that I think is is wonderful is the the idea of creating something. So um, my colleague uh, Claude Rubinson from uh, uh, University of Houston downtown, and, and Gary Gertz, he's a a political scientist. He was at Notre Dame. Now he's a, a, a emeritus. Um, but the three of us just uh, created a new conference that went for the first time last year. It's called uh, Aqua, the annual QCA conference of the Americas. And um, we ran again this year at USC. It's going to be at uh, Northwestern next year. And, um, and when you build something like that and people come and you make it work and you build a community, that is exciting. Those are, I think, the, the things that Probably, you know, the, the, at the end of your career, you look back towards the, you know, the interactions you've had with your doctoral students, your colleagues, what you build as a community of, of people trying to do better in advance. And those are the things that you probably will look back to, you know, most uh, being most satisfied as opposed to, okay, publish one more paper. And then that's great too, if it, if it has a real impact. Of course, it's wonderful. But in the end, I think, you know, sort of, uh, you know, I remember a graduation speech where um, this was actually funny. I was sitting in, in, at commencement here at USC and the Dean of Religious Studies uh, is addressing all the, the graduates and there's like thousands of people sitting there. And he starts out by saying, look, what, what do people um, say when they're on their deathbed? And I was sort of like, this is commencement. What, what, are, you, what are you talking about? And, and then he said, well, look, after sort of many, many interviews with people on their deathbed, um, Nobody ever says, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. Um, you know, I wish I'd done more of that. But they all say, look, I wish I'd spend um, more time on things I care about, more time with family, more time with my, my friends, my children. And, um, and in the end, it's about the, the connections, the people that you, that you connect to. So, so in the end, that I think is what, what matters most. And uh, yeah, that's probably what we enjoy the most. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Yeah, I uh, I agree, and especially the making an impact part is uh, is widely chosen as the most fulfilling. And along this line, what is the most challenging part on the other side of the career that you found so far? It's a couple. Um, I put grading right up there. Um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I have to remind myself that I'm I'm having an impact. And that this is something that is, is uh, you know, so because honestly, it's sometimes it feels literally like pulling teeth for me. But um, uh, uh, beyond that, right now, honestly, it is um, uh, juggling the, the, the different priorities um, and creating some sort of resemblance and balance between them that I find the most challenging between. I do care about my teaching, and so I don't want to compromise on that. Um, I'm now a, uh, a research dean for for USC Marshall, so so I have responsibilities there and doing something for for others. That uh, so I'm also not compromising on that one. As you know, you can always you always have to somewhat compromise because that's an endless task. But but I want to make sure that I feel I do a good job. And of course, you know, sort of apart from the job side, there's there's the family and then there's research. And um, between the hours of the day, there's usually not enough time. So finding some sort of balance uh, between those that's meaningful. I think that's what many of us struggle with. Look, we have, again, I think this is, you know, the best job I know I could have. 
and uh, and I love it dearly. But uh, if if you talk about challenges, that's probably um, one of the biggest ones, kind of the balance. Um, yeah, I would probably point to that first. Do you have do you have a maybe a little bit of an advice on 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 how to achieve that balance, or maybe what what's worked a little bit for you, right? Maybe I don't know because that's I think even PhD students also kind of like uh, struggle yeah. with that too. Well, again, those things shift so much, right? Right now, I'm much more of a of a manager, administrator, and and uh, an educator. Of course, when you're a doctoral student, those tend to be not the primary roles. You're primarily learning and and becoming a scholar and a researcher. So, um, so that so the, the balance is different. I think at that point, it's between your research and your learning and having some resemblance of life. <laughs> beyond that <laughs> to me sort of you know and and look i always felt that was a time when you need to invest in yourself and you have to work the 60 plus hours or so on on whatever you're doing and i found that I, i can't really effectively work more than 60 hours if i do i either get sick or I become really unproductive and and so so in that sense i i don't i you have to know what your limits is but i would say you know having developing good habits um But perhaps most importantly, make sure, if at all possible, that you have to work on something that you actually care about. There is no other way that you will spend the long hours and work at times past, whatever, if you're late and work past midnight or into the morning hours, if it's not something that you care about that is important to you or or to others for that matter, but you have to care about it. That's the only sort of way that that I think you, you make it work. Um, so... I was lucky enough to find something that that I cared about, you know, a, a lot, you know, sort of, and I was happy to do that. But uh, to me, that's uh, if you if you have that, the borderline between work and and what you would otherwise do begins to sort of um, become less problematic, I guess, right? So so I would say that. But I used to not work on weekends as much as I could. These days, I tend to work on Saturdays uh, more than I want to. You know, sort of, and hopefully that's going to be over once the the semester ends, and I'm going to go to back to something resembling normalcy again. Um, but yeah, I think you know, so again, those things change over your career. But primarily, when when you're early on, you have to be passionate. Otherwise, it's. I would also say, you know, sort of. Well, this is not work balance, but when you're when you have, you will never be as quote unquote free or as. Uh, um, Um, unlimited as when you're a doctoral student, you know, so having the time to learn, read widely, lay the foundation for what's coming later. Um, don't postpone, right? You know, that's the time to really invest in yourself and uh, and it'll pay off in spades later on. That's what I would say. I think to achieve everything you said, um, a very important thing is mentorship as well. Mm. Um, what's one of the best advices that you've received Um, both when you were a doctoral student and maybe later in your career as a professor? I was lucky enough to to get uh, to have some some really amazing mentors for that matter. So, if, you know, sort of that was um, starting with uh, Paul Hirsch and Ed Zajek at uh, Northwestern. And um, and then the, the the person that has influenced my, my thinking uh, clearly the most is uh, Charles Reagan. Um, who uh, was at Northwestern, then was at Arizona many years, and and then UC Irvine, and um, and you know sort of who, you know, and 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 with him, sort of you know the mentorship has extended um, beyond uh, sort of just academics, and also has moved towards 
um, uh, things like, uh, you know, so I remember Charles giving me advice on where to buy my wedding ring. So, you know, so my so engagement <laughs> ring at the time. So if I were asking for basically anything uh, in terms of advice, um, you know, sort of the, so mentoring is a conversation. That's how I think about it, right? You know, it's sort of, and and it's 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 a two way flow. I've been fortunate enough to have some really amazing doctoral students, and I would say I've learned at least as much from them as hopefully they have learned from me. Sort of that study. Eunice Ree was my first doctoral student. Um, so if you know uh, Vern Glazer, um, uh, uh, Maram Kikorian, uh, you know Derek Harmon, who's now at Michigan, uh, you know Maurice Murphy, who's now at Georgia. Uh, right now, I'm working with um, Enlan Wong. And of course, there have been many visiting doctoral students, not just my doctoral students, but who, whose committees I served or so. And, and again, to me, it's a, at its best, it's, a, it's based on mutual respect and trust, um, where you go on a journey together. And, uh, and, and so if you push each other to do the very best you can. And yes, there is that, that idea that I've probably been around the block more than you know, a new doctoral student, but, and, and that can be helpful. But, but in the end, I know I've, I've been, been pushed so much by my doctoral student from the conversations. For instance, I, I you know, sort of, there was a time when I was still, when I was still doing null hypothesis, significance testing, kind of correlational, uh, writing those kind of papers. That's how I started off my career. I gave that up probably about 10 years ago. Now everything I do is either, you know, configurational, in terms of methodology using, you know, set analytics or it's um, qualitative work and, and theory work. But for instance, getting into qualitative publishing and qualitative research in, in the journals, that's something that uh, uh, Vern and Glazer pulled me into because you know, he decided he was going to be a qualitative researcher and ethnographer. So my doctoral students have pulled me in in a variety of different directions that uh, that, that that I think to my mind is sort of where yeah, coming back to that that metaphor of of um, you know the mentoring being a conversation based on mutual trust and respect, and that that is really sort of what what I think is the essence to me of it. Now, you have to look for your mentors, sort of you know, and some will be your advisor. More often, they will not be your advisor. You know, I know you know when I was at Queens, uh, where many people that uh, uh, mentored me, and and some were in, you know not even my field. You know, sort of. There's a guy called Steve Sartario, an, an accounting chair professor, who took a liking to me and and and, and really taught me a lot. Uh, there was another accounting guy, Norman McIntosh, with whom I had lunch every day. Um, you know, again, sort of Charles as a sociologist. I'm not in management, but has influenced my thinking more than anyone else. And um, he was not even on my dissertation committee. Um, I learned a lot from from Art Stinchcomb. You know, sort of who was I was you know just wicked smart and 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 really insightful in so many ways, a little weird at times, but, uh, you know, that was part of him as well. Um, so, but my point is you have to sort of, I think at times go out and, and, and find your mentors and they, 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 if, if you do that, if you seek them out, um, that'll work, but, uh, it might not be your dissertation chair if you're, you're lucky if it is, but if it's not, that's okay as well, you know, build your community. And, um, and I should say it's, it's not just junior, senior, I think mentoring at its best also is sort of what you would think of as peer mentoring, you know, sort of finding your peers who will read your papers and provide you their thoughts on what you need to do better or give you advice on your career. 
and vice versa, right? You know, you will get better as you learn from them and they learn from you. So, so look for that community would be my suggestion. By the way, Academy, first time you go, very few people have a really good time, as far as I can tell. Most people have a hard time going to the Academy the first time. The good news is it gets better. Okay, so it does get better and you make friends and you see them. And once you've been there a number of years, it's really a lot more fun. And um, and now I look, that's sort of when I connect with my friends and, and colleagues I haven't seen and, and learn about new things. And I'm really excited to go there. But especially when you start out, it can be tough. You walk into one of the receptions and you don't know anyone. And uh, so, A, you need to have a, a buddy, somebody to go with to all those receptions. That's essential. Um, but the other thing I would strongly recommend, go to um, any of the early career consortia, what you're doing right now, right? You know, the New Doctor Student Consortium. Um, all the divisions have events, right? consortia. I went to a whole bunch of them from not just OMT, but uh, uh, back then it was BPS. Now it's STR, um, international management as well. And um, PDWs, right? you know, workshops at the beginning, you will meet people, be with them for a day, and you will have an instant community. And next day, you come back and just see them again. So I would strongly recommend, you know, sort of sign up for those kind of structured stuff so you meet people. Um, and the next time will be so much better. So, you know, sort of. So if you're intimidated the first time you go to the academy, and look, academy is a big, what's it, 12,000 people, right? You know, sort of, it can be very anonymous. So you have to, again, build your community and, that's how you do that. I love that. Uh, thank you, Pierre. And I think, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna kind of grab from that to kind of go close the interview a little bit. And the next question is about sharing a resource that you think has been very valuable for you. And you already talked a little bit about AOM. And maybe you can also talk a little bit more about Aqua, the, the conference you organize. And I was lucky enough to be a part of it a couple of months ago. And I loved it. I highly recommend it. Um, but yeah, a resource that you think has been helpful for you and I might be helpful for, for PhD students or, or early PhDs. I would, you know, over the years, I've been part of, of many of these uh, doctoral student consortia, workshops, you know, sort of uh, symposia, whatever it is, right? You know, sort of, and and I've been lucky enough to, you know, sort of, you know, to also learn from so many of my colleagues who were who were part of that. So that gets me back to the idea to signing up for these kind of consortia because there's a lot of informal tacit knowledge that gets shared there. The kind of stuff that you, you know, if you're lucky, there's some guide in the internet that you can read up on, but so much of it, you know, you won't, it's 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 partly socialization, part of the 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 um part of the socialization process and and the 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 uh well anyhow getting getting back to so I I've been lucky enough to learn a lot from those workshops because my colleagues also shared, you know, what they wish they'd known when they were doctor students. And I, I collected whenever I could get a copy of the slide deck, I would keep a hold on to that. Um, and, uh, and, and there's a couple of things that I know I took away from that. Um, and it's, it's things that are probably not surprising that you will hear, but, but things that I believe is, is are important. Oh, there's one thing I should point out. There is a, there's a wonderful article by Art Stinchcom. It's called On Getting Hung Up. And it's about, it's basically um, about the experience of, you have a colleague, they're very smart and they share a paper with you 
And then a half year later, you ask what happened and they share the paper and it's maybe a paragraph different and they have made no progress. They're not moving forward. And our talks about this problem of getting hung up and which often happens during dissertations, as he points out, because dissertations are these identity projects where you, you know, you could do your dissertation on basically anything. So whatever you choose says something about you. And if you pick something interesting, that's probably because you're an interesting person. If you pick something boring, what does that <laughs> say about you, right? So that puts a lot of pressure on you. So how do you negotiate that? Well, one way that you negotiate that art points out is that you don't put all your eggs in one basket, so you diversify. You know, So if you, you spread the risk and you have several projects and you have several projects at several stages. And one thing that, that helped me here sort of is to remember that your dissertation is probably not the best work that you'll ever do. And that's okay. In fact, it would be terrible if the dissertation was the best thing that you'll ever do. It's all downhill from there, right? You know, nobody <laughs> wants that. Yeah. But that takes a lot of pressure off you, right? You know, it doesn't, doesn't have to be perfect. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, there's two more things that over the, you know, so that I've, I've taken from colleagues. Um, I think it's good to have a center and a periphery. A center is where you have the efficiencies, where you're, where you're, you know, sort of, you know, as, as Will Mitchell once said, sort of where the, um, uh, the discussion section becomes the introduction to your next paper. So you get some kind of scale economies because those things all reinforce each other. But you also need a mechanism to get variation in there, to connect to others, um, to connect to other conversations. That's where you have to have sort of a, a periphery where you're, you can connect to others. Um, and the other advice that I think is, is very good is be an expert at something. And that can be a theory, can be a method, can be you know, a, a phenomenon. It doesn't really matter, but you have to really strive to get to the point where if, uh, if you say, look, you want to know about this? Oh, you have to talk to Beatrice. She kind of does all that. Or over there, well, then you have to talk to Jose because he studied that from A to begin. That kind of thing is what you really need to invest in self. So be an expert at something. Um, and it's got to be something that you're passionate about. But uh, yeah, those are those are things that I found useful. Now, I haven't given you a, like, here's the website that you go to. No, no, this is um, perfect. No, but uh, but to me, yeah, that's that's sort of, you know, sort of, I think it's, oh, well, one more thing. Brian Utsi, I remember too. Um, we did one of these things together. It's something he shared. So if you know what somebody asked him, look, how do you figure out what's a good idea? And Brian's response was, literally, so I do this too, you talk to as many people as you can about the ideas that you have, and you'll be able to tell. Mm. You'll be able to tell whether they find what you're talking about really interesting or whether it might not mm -hmm. be a good idea. And don't be afraid of um, people scooping your ideas and kind of, you know, preempting you with publishing them. I think that's a rare kind of situation in our field. So uh, talk to your friends, to your peers, to people about your ideas. So... And, and so just to wrap it up, and the last question we have for you, Pierre, is, and I, this is something that at the conference at USC, the first lunch we had, you shared with a little bit uh, with the PhD students I was having lunch with, um, some advice on, on kind of like developing a methodological expertise. You talked about advice you give to the yeah. PhD students at USC, right? And, and yeah. you, I think in my head, like QCA, set configuration analysis, I think about you, right, in management. So how do you develop that kind of like, expertise you were talking to about that become an expert on something so yeah. maybe talk a little bit more about that to kind of wrap this up i was 
and honestly, I, I got into QCA serendipity once again, you know, sort of. I was, um, Charles Reagan taught the statistics sequence to everybody who was a PhD student in management and sociology at Northwestern at the time. And um, so I took his statistics sequence and and uh, as it turns out, Charles was looking for a research assistant at the time, and he asked me whether I was interested. And if you've met Charles, you know sort of that he's one of the most amazing people you can meet. So I thought, of course, I want to do that. Not only do I get to hang out with you and learn from you, but also um, I don't have to serve as a teaching assistant, which was the alternative, right? So, so, so I got into that, and then um, so I, I learned from you know sort of just an amazing you know scholar, mentor, friend. Um, so, and, and I, at some point I figured since I'm already investing all this work, I need to leverage that. But, um, um, so that's, so I got into that by, by kind of surprise, but, but I think, you know, if you're, the advice I would give is in terms of methods, graduate school is when you need to invest in your methodological jobs. That is the time to do it. Once you're out of graduate school, it becomes so much harder to um, acquire a method. So, you know, the advice I give all my doctor students is load up on methods courses while you're a doctor student. It's, to me at least, maybe it's different for other, for other people, but I believe it's much easier to read into a literature at a later point in time. I've done it several times since. But to acquire a new methodology or to learn Python or to learn structural equation modeling, which was when I, I guess I'm dating myself, was a thing, you know, sort of at the time, you know, sort of, um, or to learn longitudinal data analysis or everything that goes around different, different and uh, instruments and, and causal identification, which by now is sort of, you know, sort of something that you have to understand well, um, whether you're qualitative or quantitative research, I don't think that matters. I took uh, courses in experimental methods at Northwestern. With I was lucky enough, Thomas Cook of Shadish uh, Cook and Campbell, uh, the the textbook on on experiments, right? He taught a, a course on experimental design, and I look, I've never run an experiment in my life, but <laughs> but I know that all my methodological expertise got a lot better because I learned that way of reasoning. So so I would really recommend, you know, again, what what where I ended up isn't something that that I planned you know, that I was going to focus on set analytics and QCA. It came along and, it, and then it took over my life, so to speak, right? And that's probably like 70% of what I do in terms of research, both theoretically and methodologically. But um, so I didn't plan it, but um, yeah, I think graduate school is the time to build that that skill. Thank you. Well, I think it's a, a great way to, to close us up. Thank you very much, Peter. Thanks for your time. We know you're a busy person, so we really appreciate it. Patricia. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. This was great. Well, Beatrice and, and Jose, thank you so much for having me and uh, to everybody who's watching. Um, <clears throat> you know, sort of uh, thanks for, for taking the time and uh, for having me here as part of this. Thanks to the two of you. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you both as well.